Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. So like I said before, it's Trinity Sunday, and it's, it's very interesting that we have a Sunday called Trinity Sunday. You would think that like every Sunday would be Trinity Sunday, right? Because this is God we're talking about, and God, in God's own nature, is triune, three in one. Yet we have this very uh, unique Sunday here for a reason, to remind ourselves that we do worship a God who is three in one, and to also re- become reacquainted with what that threeness in oneness and oneness in threeness means for us. See, for, for millennia, Millennia, yes, this, the concept of the Trinity began with the church. Uh, for millennia, scholars have been trying to unpack just how on earth three equals one. I don't know if, if any of you are math people, but, but I encourage you sometime to try to figure out some equation in which the number three equals the number one. It, it doesn't work. Three does not equal one. They are not the same number. Three is actually three different ones, but that's not how it works with the Trinity. And so for millennia, scholars have been wrestling with this, trying to figure out, what? That doesn't make any sense. How does that work? What do we do with that? How how are we supposed to continue on with this? And so around the uh, year 280, uh, don't quote me on that, it's somewhere in that time frame, 280 CE, uh, a man named Athanasius came around, and he wrote this statement, which we now call the Athanasian Creed, that that seeks to answer this whole, how on earth does three equal one? And it's important to acknowledge that because When we come to unpack Trinity Sunday and what Trinity Sunday is all about, Trinity Sunday is a day in which we wrestle with identity. Identity is a critical aspect of what it means to even exist as a human being, as a community, as anything. Anything that exists, we assign some identity to it. Uh, even, I don't know, let's take, this, let's take this room that we are in. What room are we in right now? The Fellowship Hall. This room has an identity. That's crazy, but it does. It's just a room, but we give it an identity because it exists in some construct in our mind. Now, I know I'm going to start getting a little bit heady up here, and it's going to be like, 
please don't do this right now, but I promise it's all going to come down to some grounded concept. We just gotta, we gotta make our way down the stairs first. Uh, so, so Trinity Sunday is a Sunday about identity. And we start with the identity of God, namely the triune God, the Trinity. But here's one thing that it took, uh, that, that scholars over 2,000 years have, have always had to kind of turn their attention to. That as much as we might wrestle with the identity of the Trinity, as much as we might wrestle with the concept of God being three in one and one in three, ultimately the answer to that question doesn't matter. God is going to continue being who God is regardless of how we understand who God is, right? I mean, I think that's pretty fair to say we, in our imagination, are not going to change God. It's nice to, to have that figured out because we're a people who like answers, but what scholars over millennia, two millennia, have, have, uh, have come to, to wrestle with is that the whole concept of the Trinity, yes, it's fun to tease out, but it only matters insofar as it impacts our identity as people who believe in the Trinity. Yet still, the question still remains. How does three equal one? Well, I talked about that guy, Athanasian, uh, Athanasian, yeah, I think that's his name, uh, Athanasia, there we go. Uh, and he came up with this statement, which we call the Athanasian Creed, uh, that reads, and I'm just going to read the first section of it because there, there are two sections. The first section of the Athanasian Creed talks about the Trinity, how three equals one. The second half of the Athanasian Creed talks about the dual nature of Christ, how, God, how Christ can be 100% God and 100% human, because that's two 100%, that equals 200%, and nobody can be 200% human being or entity. You're only 100%, then that's all you got. Uh, so that's the second half of the Athanasian Creed. If you're interested in that, I implore you to go look it up. It is a fascinating statement. But this is the first part that has to do with the Trinity. Uh, and this is translated from the original language it was written in, in Latin, so, you know, there are some concepts that don't cross perfectly, but here we go. Now, this is the Catholic faith, not the Roman Catholic faith, the universal faith. The word Catholic means universal. Now, this is the universal faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their, e their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. Is your brain hurting yet? Because it's going to get worse. <laughs> so too, there are not 
three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, but there is one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord. And the Son is Lord. And the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. Yes, I know, that's a long statement. Just imagine, it keeps going on, on to the sun to ex explore Jesus. So, um, does that provide any clarity? I hope not. <laughs> um, it, it might, I don't know. It, the, what, what essentially this creed is trying to say is that you will never grasp the Trinity. Just know that the Trinity is as the Trinity is, and the Trinity does as the Trinity does. It is this very confounding mystery that we adhere to, that God is three in one, and that each member, member of the Godhead, I have to put that in quotes because that is an inaccurate expression, are all three God, and yet they are all three oh, different entities, not entities, persons, that's also any statement that I make apart from this right here is going to be a, a, a heresy. Uh, in fact, um, around the time of Athanasia, there were many heresies that were coming up as they were trying to describe the Trinity. Uh, one famous one came from St. Patrick. Does anybody remember what St. Patrick used to describe the Trinity? A clover, yes. As St. Patrick was uh, spreading the Christian faith throughout, uh, throughout Ireland, what we know as Ireland today, uh, he used the clover. They are abundant there. He used the clover and he said, this is the Trinity. False, St. Patrick. The clover is a terrible representation of the Trinity. The clover tries to say that, you know, this little 
point over here is the Father, and this one is the Son, and this one is the Holy Spirit, and there are three leaves on the clover, but yet there is one clover, and that's the Trinity. That's a heresy called partialism. You are saying that each member of the Trinity is a part of the Trinity, and that's not true. Each member of the Trinity is the Trinity. So, as you can see, no matter how you try to talk about the Trinity, it's going to be wrong. That's where we start, okay, when we're talking about identity. I had to go to the very complex nature of all of this just to say, this is where we start. <laughs> but this is Trinity Sunday, where we get to really wrestle with the complex nature of God, the God whom we worship three in one. And so, we have, we have this notion of identity, and we've started to unpack this concept of the identity of God, three in one. And now we have to ask, what does that mean for us? Why does that matter? Why is it important that our God is three in one? Why is it important that we even care? Well, you see, the Trinity, the triune God, is reshaping our identity to participate in the divine dance. Okay? I'm going to expound on that a little bit more in just a moment. But first, I want to ask a question. If I were to ask, who are you? How do you think you would respond? Name? Yeah? Yeah, I imagine so. If I were to come up to you and say, who are you? You'd probably say, I'm so-and-so. Like if, somebody came, if you came up to me and said, who are you? I'd say, hey, I'm Micah Wright. Um, that's a terrible way to answer that question, by the way, because it gives you no information about the person. If only a person's name actually described themselves, you know what my name would describe? Who is like God? Some translate it as one who is like God. I think that's not accurate by any means, but who is like God? It's a question. Um, my name gives zero information about who I am. And so uh, we have this notion of identity, but we use like really strange concepts to unpack identity. For example, uh, who is God? If I were to ask that question, I imagine that your answer might be a couple of adjectives. God is love. God is good. God is merciful. God is three in one. I don't know, something like that. Uh, once again, our notion of identity is very abstract and doesn't help us a whole lot because even those adjectives fail to describe who God is. The question, who are you, is a far more complex question than we give credence to. So I want, to, I want you to think about, for just a moment, the question, who are you? Specifically, take yourself into that question and think about that question for the remainder of our time together today. Even if you're not even paying attention to me anymore, that's fine. Just focus on that question, who are you, okay? Because the concept of the Trinity, the very, in its very nature, and by our very adherence to the faith, by our willingness to be Christian people who follow this triune God, calls us into a reshaping of our identity. A reshaping of our identity. Romans 8 is a unique passage to be able to use on Trinity Sunday, but I'm very grateful for it because it starts out by saying what we are no longer. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for all, uh, but, uh, but if... Uh, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Okay, so this Romans 8 starts to wipe away an old identity. It starts to say, this is what we once were, and we're just going to shoo this away. And if you want to get a better grasp of what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, go back and start at the beginning of Romans and read through up till 8. He's got a lot to say about what it means to be debtors, what it means to be slaves to the flesh, what it means to live in the flesh. But he's gotten us to this point, and he says, this is what we were, we're just going to shoo that away. That's not who we are anymore. We don't want any part of that anymore. It's inadequate. It's not sufficient. It's not who we were intended to be. Rather, he says, uh, you, he says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That You didn't get that. God did not give you that. That's gone. Sweep that away. We don't want that anymore. Instead, you have received a spirit of adoption. Adoption. This is the first movement that we are going to have to acknowledge today. Adoption. Because this is the first participatory act on behalf of the Trinity to reshaping our identity. We have been adopted by the Father. But for, to fully understand what Paul is saying here, erase everything that you know about adoption. Adoption in Paul's time is very different than adoption in our time. Uh, adoption in Paul's time is referring to slaves. Uh, people, particularly in higher status positions, people who were able to pay for afford uh, slaves. People had indentured servants. These were not also not the same kind of slaves that we think about today. Kind of similar, but not really. These were people who did not have employment, could not find any way to sustain their lives, and so they give themselves to some wealthier uh, family and say, hey, if you just let me live in your house, you know, let me eat your food, then I'll do whatever you want. Perfect. You sustain my life and I will help make your life easier. That's kind of slavery there. The adoption that Paul is talking about is adoption of that slave. Okay? So, and, and, and this is not a common thing, mind you. This is not a common thing that Paul is talking about. It did happen, not common. But in this notion of adoption uh, that Paul is talking about here, a person of, uh, in the Roman Empire of this time would say to their slave, you are no longer a slave, but I call you family. And would, would completely erase the status of slave on that person, and that person would then inherit the very name of their master and would join the family. That's, this, that's, that's the kind of adoption that Paul is talking about here. That's the kind of adoption that he wants us to understand. That you might remember just not long ago, two, three, three weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was saying, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. It's the very same notion. No longer are you called slaves, but I have welcomed you into my family. I want you to take upon my name, to live in my house. And he, and, and, and he takes it even further than that, calling us heirs, but we'll get there in a minute. So that's the first participatory act on behalf of the Trinity in reshaping our identity. It wipes away everything that we once clung to. Clinged to? The past of cling. Clang to? 
<laughs> clung perfect. <laughs> yeah, sometimes those words are, get me. Um, yeah, so everything that we once held on to, I'll use that one instead, everything that we once held on to, everything that we once identified ourselves with in this world, God says, no more. That's not who you were meant to be. Instead, you were meant to be a part of my family. I'm adopting you, calling you my own child, giving you my own name. We have been adopted. And Paul goes on to say, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That word Abba is left in there for a reason. Yes, it translates as Father, Abba, Father, similar word, but Abba is left in there for a reason. That word is much more intimate. Imagine saying Papa, Daddy. This is the kind of word that a child would use, right? So, so Paul here is trying to really make a claim that this adoption is an intimate adoption. It's not an obligatory adoption. It's not one where God says, fine, whatever, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take you along. No, this is, this is an intimate adoption that says, I want you, and I want you to want me in the same way, to, to be intimately connected as a family. Okay, so we have that very first. And we introduced in there the second member of the, uh, another member of the Trinity. I don't want to say second because there's no hierarchy here. Another member of the Trinity, the Spirit. And that, uh, that member was brought in at the very beginning. We have this notion of being guided by the Spirit. You may recall, uh, how far back? I don't know, my goodness, may have been like a year ago, uh, if I'm thinking correctly about it. Hmm. Maybe not quite that far, but we had an entire sermon series on what it means to be guided by the Spirit. It started with that message on the fruit of the Spirit, and then it went into what it means to actually live as people guided by the Spirit. Here's the thing about being guided by the Spirit. This is a real Christianese expression. Have you ever heard that term, Christianese? It means it's something that Christians throw around, and they don't even really know what it means. It just sounds cute in the church, to be guided by the Spirit, like, you know, oh, why did you do that thing? Well, the Spirit guided me to it. Okay, fine, sure, whatever, that, that's sweet. No, no, to be guided by the Spirit, though, while, while, while we have this Christianese expression, it has very deep implications. I want to take you back for a moment to the sheep metaphor that Jesus often uses in his parables. He calls people like sheep. And in many ways, we are like sheep. I don't know how many of you have spent like a significant amount of time around sheep, but they just kind of like do their own thing. They're herd animals, so they like to stay around one another. They're social in that way, much like human beings. But they just kind of do their own things, like graze over here, wander over here, and then eventually wander over here and get into a lot of trouble and need some help. Sometimes that works out, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, human beings are, have a lot in common with sheep in a very unfortunate way. Uh, we are like these herd animals that just kind of do our own thing, sometimes wander into trouble, sometimes wander into good pastures, whatever. And so Jesus comes in with, this par- with these metaphors and these parables to say, I'm here to be a guide, to help, as a shepherd, lead us back into, well, greener pastures, the place where it is intended for you to be, the place where you will flourish and thrive, because we're really bad at doing that ourselves. I don't know if you've noticed. We know how to take care of ourselves, like sheep do. They know when to graze for grass, when to drink from uh, the water. But uh, we're really bad at actually doing the best for ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's horribly ironic, but that's our existence. We think we know what's best, and we always end up in some kind of chaos. And so the Spirit is introduced as the 
guide. After Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, we then have the Spirit introduced as the guide that remains with us, that teaches us, that advocates for us, that shows us the better way. So, so we are adopted, this intimate adoption by the Father. We are guided by the Spirit. And to what end on both accounts, the adoption and the guidance? To be, Paul goes on, uh, that, let's see, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Consider that. This very adoption, this very guidance by the spirit has called us to a plane equal to that with Christ. Equal to that with Christ. And, and you might be sitting there thinking, like, no, that, that's not possible. No, it is. That's what Paul is saying. That's exactly what this whole adoption and guidance thing is all about. Like, like to be on the same plane as Christ. To be co-heirs with Christ. And that word is also chosen very specifically here on behalf of Paul. To be heirs. To be an heir is to be a beneficiary. Uh, we don't really have, like, heir status in our society anymore. The closest thing would be uh, those, like after a person passes away, those people who are written into the will of that person. Uh, and those people are considered the heirs of the property, the estate of the person who passed away. Still translates for us here. We are the beneficiaries of God's riches co-equal with Christ, the very same riches that Christ receives, so too we receive. But I want to take just a moment and erase everything that you think about riches. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about power or status or anything like that. The riches that proceed from God are far more obvious than that. Sure, eternal life, but even more obvious than that. Let's go back to that. If you were to ask, if I were to ask you who is God and you were to provide some answer, that answer, by and large, would be included in these riches. If I were to say who is God and you were to say God is love, you, have, you are an inheritor of God's love. God is grace. You are an inheritor of God's grace. God is mercy. God is compassion. God is joy. You are an, an inheritor of God's joy. God is peace. You are an inheritor, co-inheritor with Christ of God's peace. The list goes on and on. We keep making these claims about God that will never be fully sufficient to actually describe God, but they describe the inheritance to which God has called us, God has adopted us, the Spirit has guided us, and we are co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ to receive God's riches of love, of grace, of peace, of hope, of faith. Keep the list going. This is what God has called us to. So I'm going to take, go back then to that whole claim that Trinity Sunday is a day about identity. Not only the identity of God, but how the identity of God reshapes our identity. The triune God is reshaping our identity to participate in the divine dance. A couple of weeks ago, you heard me talk about the perichoresis, which is just a fancy word that literally means the divine dance. 
word from which we get choreography. And in the perichoresis is used to help describe the Trinity as three members who are in a dance with one another, constantly making room for one another, like in some kind of samba or salsa or I don't know, swing dance, whatever you wanna throw in there. The, the Trinity is constantly making room for one another, occupying the same space with one another, going around one another, moving together in this divine dance. And this very same Trinity reshapes our identity to come and be a part of that divine dance, welcoming us into that very same Trinitarian dance as we have been adopted by the Father, guided by the Spirit, co-heirs with the Son. We have been invited into the very Trinity. And I don't mean that we become a member of the Trinity. We, it's not like all of a sudden a quadrinity. It's still the Trinity. But we have been invited into that intimate space to experience God, to become knowledgeable of God, but even more than that, to become intimately known by and intimately know God. That's what Trinity Sunday is all about. Yes, we can continue to hash out the Athanasian Creed all that you would like and to continue to explore how on earth three equals one and one equals three and what that means, but what's more important is how it influences our life. So my challenge for each and every one of us today is to simply embrace your identity as guided, adopted heirs. Guided by the Spirit, adopted by the Father, co-heirs with the Son recognize how the Trinity is reshaping your life. So I, I hope that you've kept that same question I asked you earlier on in your mind. Who are you? Whatever answers you might come up with, I want you to put in that answer, I am a guided, adopted heir of God. I am a guided, adopted heir of God. Now we're going to do that uncomfortable thing where we're all going to say it together at the same time. Ready? I am a guided, adopted heir of God. Yes, that is what the Trinity is all about, reshaping our identity. And now it calls us to put that new life, that new identity into action. Let us go and be the church people. And let us pray.